we are continuing to unpack the section in Acts 2 that gives us some characteristics of the earliest moments in the life of the church. Looking at key characteristics, we've covered community and wonder, and today we are turning our attention to generosity. And we're doing so by looking at Acts 4, starting at verse 32 and reading through verse 37. So listen then for the voice of God. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to those who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's nothing quite like the squeals of delight that a bunch of chairs and a little bit of music can bring out in a group of kids. Whether it is a birthday party or just a backyard get-together, there's always reliable fun to be had with a game of musical chairs. Now, maybe it's been a long time since you played this game, but whether it was 50 years ago or five weeks ago, the rules have pretty much remained the same. You place chairs in a circle, outward facing, but there's one chair short of the amount of folks who will be playing. Do you have eight kids at your birthday party? You're putting out seven chairs. And the music starts, and everyone walks around the circle until the music stops. And then it is a massive, mad rush to get a seat. And everyone claims a seat, except one. Whoever couldn't manage to be fast enough, or who wasn't particularly paying attention, or maybe someone who just wasn't real good at, you know, kind of shoving an elbow in someone's face, all in the name of good fun, they were left out. Then a chair is removed, and the music starts again. Everyone walks around the circle until the music stops. Mad rush to claim a seat. Someone's out, chair is removed, and the music starts again. Until it stops, and there's one chair left. And there's one person left standing, and there's one person left sitting, 
and the game is won. Musical chairs is a game of subtraction. It is a game of competition, where to survive to the next round, to make sure you're not just sitting on the sidelines, you need to get a chair. And everyone knows there's not enough chairs to go around by design, because that is how the game works. And even as we age out of playing musical chairs, the lessons we learn in this game, this game of subtraction, of competition, well, they continue to shape us. Because it's not just how the game works, it's in fact how the world works. Your employer announces that mm, profits weren't exactly where everybody wanted them to be in the last quarter and layoffs are coming. You know now that there's not enough chairs for everyone. Friendly colleagues become fierce competitors. And you're more than willing to throw a little elbow here or there to make sure that you wind up in one of the chairs when the music stops. Or your company has a bid for a really major project downtown. And you know that one sizable donation to one particular person will get you ahead of your rival bid. There's only one chair. And maybe that just that one little payoff, even if it's morally dubious, will make sure that that last chair is yours. An election has been called, and you're anxious to make sure that your party gets in power, or stays in power. And you know an article that's circulating online that's attacking the person that's most likely to, to win. You know it's not exactly true. In fact, it's pretty much just a pack of lies, but it hurts them. And so you click share anyway, because only one party can be in power. You want your party to have a chair when the music stops. We know there's not enough chairs to go around. And a little self-interest goes a long way in this game of competition. Because that is just how the world works. Which is what makes this portion of scripture for us this morning a little unbelievable. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And there were no needy persons among them. It's telling that most of the scholars and commentators that I read this week is wrestling with this packet, this, this portion of this uh, scripture and unpacking it. Most of them spend a good chunk of their first reflection on this passage trying to gauge and determine just how true this description was of the early church. 
did they really share everything they had? I mean, how much of this is just kind of idealistic nostalgia or even a little bit of church propaganda to say this is what it can be like? Because come on, this cannot be for real. I think it says a lot about us that we believe and say we believe in the power of God to resurrect the dead, but we find it simply too incredible to believe that God has the power to make us share. And I can even feel it in this room that as we come to this passage, we're all a little uncomfortable. This is not a passage that we're like, oh, we live this, we know this, this describes us. This passage is hard for us. But for Luke, this is just what life together under the reign of God looks like. This is a short and packed passage of scripture. And Luke is actually drawing on an ancient tradition of the year of Jubilee. After God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, they're on the cusp of entering the land that they can call home, God describes for them, through Moses, what life together under the reign of God will look like. The book of Deuteronomy covers this, so does Leviticus. And it covers a lot of community building programs, instructions that touch on everything from architecture to legal proceedings, meal preparation to household rules, and economic policy. Every seventh year is known as the Sabbath year, where across the people of God, all debts are canceled. It's a Sabbath year for the people. And then, after seven of these Sabbath years, about 50 years, not only were all debts canceled, but the 50th year was the year of Jubilee, where not only are debts canceled, but people are released from slavery and servanthood, and their land is returned to them if they lost it in the last 50 years. There's this redistribution of wealth and possessions that was built into the economy of God's people. I will make note here that there is also no evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever actually done. But Luke echoes here in Acts, he echoes what Moses declares in Deuteronomy around this year of Jubilee, these years of Sabbath rest, this redistribution of wealth and possessions. Moses declares, there need be no poor people among you in the land the Lord God is giving you to possess. Give generously to those in need and do so without a grudging heart. And then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy 
in your land. When Luke describes the early churches having no needy among them, it's not meant to be unbelievable. It's meant to point us to the kind of sharing economy that is shaped by the presence and grace of God. For Luke, in the earliest days following the resurrection of Jesus, he witnesses to a church shaped not by subtraction and competition, but by generosity and abundance. And that's not because they were especially good people or that they were more naturally generous than us 21st century Christians or because their ancient culture made it easier for them to give up their stuff or they just had way less cool stuff than we do so it was easier for them to give it up. But Luke says it was because God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all. One New Testament scholar reflecting on this passage says that the Christian life is about adjusting ourselves to the existence of a gracious God. And he goes on to write that Acts describes for us what this adjustment actually looks like, the first major readjustment. And Luke tells us and shows us through this story that Christian faith changed how people lived, where they lived, how they understood property ownership, how they understood something as basic as a meal at a table and around who you gather and eat with. And Luke wants us to see that the early Christians and ourselves now wants to see us as people of a different way. But it can be easier to dismiss Luke's description of this different way. A different way to play the game. To see it as unbelievable. To pause and say, come on, really? Come on. Huh? I know humans. Humans don't do this. The path of least resistance here is to say that we believe in a gracious God and leave it there. The path of following Jesus, though, <laughs> is about wrestling with what kind of life this gracious God invites us to live. And maybe that's why Luke doesn't just leave us with a, a big picture of the community sharing all things with each other. Doesn't just give us a big picture of saying the community does this, they share generously. Instead, Luke actually gives us a concrete example with a name. <laughs> a concrete example of a generous life lived and shaped by the grace of God. Joseph, a member of the tribe of Levi, 
a man from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Luke says this is one of the ways that the community of believers could care for each other, could meet their needs. One of the ways. From time to time, more well-off folks in the community of believers would sell some land or a house and give it to the apostles to meet the needs of the broader community, the broader Christian community. We're not even talking about mission and evangelism. We're talking about care for the community of believers. And Joseph happened to be one of these well-off folks. But there are others in the community of believers who have homes and land, and they don't sell them off. They don't donate the proceeds to the church community. We know from later in the book of Acts and also all of Paul's letters that there are many who owned a home where the Christian community gathered. It was big enough to have a gathering. They didn't sell their home to be generous. They opened it to share their home with others. But that's getting more into hospitality, and Pastor Tom's taking us there next week. Luke shows us that there's not just one way of being generous, of living generously with a community of believers. So I don't think that this story, this teaching, this mention of Barnabas, I don't think it's there just to be an example to rich folks about how you can contribute to the community of believers. Because what that does is it lets anyone who doesn't consider themselves well off or rich off the hook. Well, I can't sell a house or land, so um, I'll leave it to those who can. They can live generously. Now, maybe this morning, if you need to hear that word of God, I will leave that between you and the Spirit, okay? But I don't think the story is here for the whole community of believers if it's only speaking to just a few. Barnabas is mentioned here by name more than just as a well-off person who sells some land. Because this is not the only place where we hear about Barnabas and his influence and his generous life in the community of believers. Just in the remaining story that Luke tells, Barnabas comes up three major times. When Saul, after meeting the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul finds his way and tries to go to Jerusalem and starts knocking on the doors of followers of Jesus, and surprise, after you have murdered and imprisoned other followers of Jesus, they ain't gonna open their door to you real quick. Do you know who did open their door? Barnabas. We're told that it was Barnabas who took a risk and believed Saul's transformation and advocated for him with the apostles and in the community of believers. 
because Barnabas saw the grace of God at work in Saul's life. Then when persecution spread the gospel out beyond Jerusalem, and the apostles and other church leaders back in Jerusalem heard that, oh, there's some other gatherings happening. There's one in Antioch, there's one over here, and they weren't sure what to do because they were kind of losing control of the narrative a little bit. And who do they send to investigate? They send Barnabas, this son of encouragement. And Luke tells us that when Barnabas came to that community of believers outside the established network of Jerusalem churches, that he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas again saw the grace of God at work in the life of this new gathering of believers. And then, one final piece. There's a church council called in Acts 15. And a church council is called of all the church leaders to determine what to do with the Gentile problem. There are all these outsiders who seem to be coming and following Jesus. What do we do with them? What do they have to do to belong to the community of believers? And Barnabas stood and spoke on behalf of inclusion without restrictions for them. Barnabas witnessed to the grace of God at work, breaking down the long-held religious barriers of who is in and who is out, and to welcome the Gentile Christians. In the generous life of Barnabas, Luke shows us a follower of Jesus adjusting his life to the existence of a gracious God. The grace of God powerfully at work in his life led him to practice generosity. Not just with his possessions, not just one time selling a field, but to practice generosity with those he welcomed into the life of the community of believers. Former enemies like Saul, former outsiders like the Gentiles. Barnabas is a man of faith, as Acts calls it, who added chairs when others wanted to remove them. Now, adjusting our life to the existence of a gracious God takes practice. It doesn't always come easy. It is most certainly not always comfortable. And we need to unlearn so many deeply ingrained lessons that the world has taught us. We need to have abundance rather than a scarcity model. Practice generosity rather than go deeper into greed. And seek out grace rather than resorting to competition. Whether you've been on this journey following Jesus a long time or only for a short while, 
we always need practice. So we're going to practice together this week. As you think about and pray about your week ahead, what beloved possession could you make available to someone else so that they experience God's care in a tangible way? Could you deepen another's experience of community and belonging by welcoming someone else into your circle of friends? What skill or knowledge or hobby or talent do you have that could enrich someone else's life this week? And in this world where often time is our most precious of possessions, there never seems to be enough of it in the day or the week, who is God placing in your life this week who needs your attention? Who needs your time? Because the world may work by removing chairs. But followers of Jesus who are shaped and empowered by the grace of God moving powerfully among them all, we work by adding as many chairs as is necessary, as is needed for everyone to have a seat. So may the grace of God be so powerfully at work among us all. At work in our lives, in the life of this community of believers. That those around us, our neighbors, our community, can see a different way to play the game. And all of this, all of this, is to the glory of our gracious God, who has the power to resurrect from the dead. And however unbelievable at times it is, even has the power to make us generous. Let us pray. Our generous God. You invite us into a life of sharing, of pulling up another chair, because that is who you are. You are our generous God, who did not keep even the most precious thing to yourself, your son, from us, but gave him up for us. What a generous gift. And all of our small acts and big acts of generosity are only tiny reflections of that big gift. And as we practice trying to be your generous people, may we, through our successes and our failures, more deeply know, more deeply trust your generosity towards us. In the name of Jesus, 
the most generous gift ever given. Amen.